Molly and Noah uh, for again sharing the giftings with the congregation. So let's go to the Lord and uh, commit, uh, commit this time to Him. Father, we once again come to You in prayer. We plead with You. We ask You to help us that Your Spirit would uh, be with us, that Your Spirit would guide us as we come to uh, read Your Word and to uh, reflect upon it and to hear from the preaching of your word. We pray that uh, your spirit would uh, unite us to the truth of this word, that it would open up our eyes to uh, behold the significance of it for us today. We confess to you that what we're praying uh, is impossible to accomplish in our own strength. So we, we pray that your spirit would move in our midst, that the distractions that are upon our mind would be done away with, that we would be aware of the schemes of Satan who is seeking even now, crouching like a lion to devour us and to cause us to be blind to the truth of your word this morning. So Lord, we want to be aware of those things. We want to pray against them. And Father, we pray that your word would be profitable this morning for teaching, that it would be profitable for reproof, that it would be profitable for correction, and that it would be profitable for training in righteousness. So Lord, guide us now, guard us from error, and may the clarity of your word uh, reign. In the name of Christ, your Son, we pray. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark will be in chapter 14. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, there should be a red pew Bible in front of you. And we will be on page 851. So if you don't have your Bible with you, I encourage you to, to look in one of those red pew Bibles right in front of you and turn to eight, page 851. And for those that do have your Bible, we're in the Gospel of Mark, which is in the New Testament, the second book of the Bible, the second book of the New Testament. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, one of the Gospels, and we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And we are almost at the end of Mark. The last Sunday in July, we will actually conclude the book of Mark. But right now, this morning, we are in Mark chapter 14. And specifically, we'll be looking at verses 32 through 42. 32 through 42 of Mark chapter 14, where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, throughout the Gospel of Mark, uh, we have been, uh, Mark has done a great job of showing us the power of Jesus, showing us who Jesus is. And it's important to remember that when we talk about Jesus, that what we believe as evangelical Christians and what we would believe as this congregation is that Jesus was at the same time fully God and fully man. Now, as we're reading through the Gospel of Mark, sometimes it's easy to forget the fact that Jesus was fully man because we see all these aspects that clearly demonstrate how he was fully God, where he's healing people, he has control over the weather, he's raising the dead, he's casting out demons, uh, he has he claims to have the authority uh, to forgive sins uh, all these things that are identifying him as divine that he in fact is the son of God and with that, that the fullness of God, as the New Testament later writes, 
was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. But in this passage, Mark abruptly reminds us of the humanness of Jesus. And I would argue, other than the passages that speak of Jesus' death, there are no greater passages in the scriptures that, that point to the reality of the fact that, yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was fully human. So when we say that Jesus was fully human, we mean that all the things that we struggle with, the temptations, the sorrow that Jesus himself faced. And this is what we, we see here in this passage. And, and as you read it, it's, and as you're thinking who this is that Mark is talking about, it's almost unbelievable that at one way, at the same time, we have the Son of God, but in the other way, we have this man, Jesus, who is wrestling with these uh, emotions that all of us can be able to relate to to some degree. So let's begin reading in verse 32 and through 42. And we're going to see here, for the first time, the burden of the cross. Because throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been very clear that he has prophesied his coming death. He's talked about it. He's told the disciples that, that he's going to die, that he's going to be killed. And just uh, last week, we told, looked at how we know that Jesus is going to be betrayed. But here we see how the reality of his coming death and his coming suffering uh, weighs upon his heart and soul. So in verse 32, Mark writes, He says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And after going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As I mentioned before, this passage more than so many others gives us a glimpse into the human aspect of who Jesus is. And in that, we have to ask the question, what is the significance of Mark giving us such a, a vivid picture of the torment in which Jesus was going through here on this night, which he was hours away from being crucified? And there are a couple of things that I think are beneficial for us to think about. The first one is that Jesus suffered real emotional pain 
or you could say Jesus suffered real emotional distress and real physical pain. These, these aren't just things that, that he is immune to, but that here we see that he really struggled with emotional distress. And partly that was because he knew of his, his coming physical pain. And then also we're going to see that in this Jesus submitted to the will of the Father in the face of temptation and suffering. So in the midst of this reality of him suffering emotional distress and facing the reality of his physical suffering, he was able to say, not my will, but your will. And he submitted to the will of the Father in the midst of his temptation and his suffering. So as we think about this, I want us again to to look at verses 33 and 34, where Jesus is saying, so he's taken his disciples, he's taken Peter and James and John, and he's brought them to this garden, this, this olive garden, here on the Mount of Olives, in this garden of Gethsemane. And he has his closest inner circle with him, those that are closest to him, Peter, James, and John. And he says to them, he says that, that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he says in verse 34 that my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Now Mark could have just said, well, Jesus was a little troubled or he, he had a lot on him. Or Mark could have said, he didn't have to say anything. He could have just said, well, Jesus went to pray. But he gives us this strong language where he says it three times, three different ways. He said he's greatly distressed. He's greatly troubled. And his soul is very sorrowful. So he's driving home the fact that this man Jesus, who yes, is the Son of God, but yes, he's also fully man, he is at his wit's end. Even to the point of death. Now, if that doesn't in some way speak to where we are, what does? And the fact that Jesus himself is saying that I am battling with just the torment of my soul. That I'm troubled. The weight of the world is upon me. I mean, how many of us, when we're honest, to say there are so many times where those words could have described me. And maybe they describe you now what's going on this morning or last night or in the days to come. The reality is is that God has given us souls, that we have emotions, and at times those emotions are just as Jesus' was. They are greatly distressed. They are greatly troubled. And we can shout that my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. So we see here that Mark is intentionally opening up the heart of Christ to us so that we can see that this God in whom we claim to be our king is not some distant God. But as the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. 
So the author of Hebrews is, when he's talking about Jesus, he's saying the reality is, is that we don't have a high priest who is distant, who doesn't know what it means to be a human, who doesn't know what it means to struggle with the day-to-day struggles of each day. He's saying, in fact, the opposite of truth is true. Our high, high priest, who we claim to be Christ, has been tempted in every respect as we have. And that he can sympathize with our weakness. Why can he sympathize with our weakness? Because he's been there. And so, whatever it is in your life this morning that is causing emotional distress, that it feels like someone has taken an anvil and tied a rope to it, and then tied it to your heart, and it's dragging in the depths of your soul. The reality is is that Jesus has been there and done that. Because regardless of what it is we're we're struggling, we don't have a more uh, or greater weight than Christ Himself had upon Him. I mean, part of the, the, the stress here that Christ is struggling with is that He knows what the next 24 hours hold. He knows that in the coming moments he's going to be betrayed. He knows what happens in the rest of chapter 14. He knows what happens in the rest of chapter 15. He knows that he's going to be beaten. He knows that he's going to be whipped. He knows that the weight of the sin of the world is going to be put upon him. And he knows there's going to come a time when he's on the cross, where he's going to yell, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows these things. And the weight of those things are greater than any weight we will ever face. Regardless of what burdens we bear, we don't bear the sins of the world. We don't bear the wrath of God upon us. And yet this is what Jesus knows is going to happen in the next 12 to 20 hours. And so he is at the point where he can literally say, my soul is sorry for even to the point of God. What does he do? When he is at his end, he turns to the Father. Which is contrary to what most of us do. When we get to the point where our soul is at its wit's end, or we're greatly distressed, or we're greatly troubled, the first thing that we do is often not turn to the Father. We try to go find a book. It tells us ten steps to get out of the, the problems that we're in. Or maybe we call a family member. Or maybe we go look on TV to try to see what Oprah or Dr. Phil or Dr. Drew or whoever it is that's on TV, what do they have to say? Or maybe we can do a Google search to find out what is it, how, how am I going to fix my problem? I'm so distressed. So all these places that we are continually turning to And yet the example that Jesus gives us is that he turns to the Father. 
And as we're going to see as we, we look at these these prayers that he prays, oftentimes we say our our version of praying is, Oh, I'm so stressed, Reverend. Lord Jesus, just please help me. And we keep going. This isn't what Jesus did. But he turns to the Father. In all his troubledness, his anxiety, his distressness, the troubles and sorrows of his souls. In verse 35, he begins praying and, and he's asking that this hour would be taken from him. And he says in verse 36, he says, Abba, Father. So this word Abba meaning this recognizing this close relationship between the Father and Jesus. An intimate relationship. We're saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Amazing here that the Son of God, this tells us that He knew what was coming. And there was parts of Him that didn't want to do it. Because He knew the pain that was coming. He knew the torment that was coming. And yet He's asking the Father, God, I know You can do anything. Because theology is right. I know you can do anything, God. All things are possible for you. Is it possible that you remove this cup? Is it possible that you remove this cup? But he didn't end his prayer there. Thankfully so. And that is often where we end our prayers. If we do pray and bring these things to God. We say, God, I know you can do anything. Please take this problem from me. Take this trial from me. Take this sickness from me. Take this family distress from me. In the name of Jesus, amen. But Jesus didn't stop his prayer. He's genuinely asking the Father to remove the cup from him. Yet he prays on and he says, Yet not what I will, but what you will. We see here that even the Son of God submits himself to the authority of the Father. And even the Son of God submits himself to the purpose of the Father. Because if you ask Jesus, Jesus, would you rather not be betrayed would you rather not be beaten? Would you rather not bear the sins of the world? Would you rather not have nails nailed through your feet and your hands? And I think it's safe to say from this request that Jesus would say, well, no, honestly, yeah, I would rather not do that. No one wakes up in the morning and, and says, I can't wait to be crucified. And Jesus is a human being. So it's not like He is glorying in the fact that He's about to be Persecuted, He's not glorying in the fact that he is about to be betrayed. He's not glorying in the fact that in the next 12 hours he's going to be beaten and nailed to a cross. But at the same time, he recognizes that his human desire or emotions are not supreme. That what is supreme is purpose of God. God's will of purpose that He redeem a people for Himself. 
And this redemption can only take place through the willing obedience of the Son through His death and His resurrection. So Jesus doesn't end His prayer by saying, take this cup from me. But He ends it by saying, in the end, God, Your will be done on heaven as it is on earth. Not my will, but Your will. And I submit to your authority. And I know that this is the purpose that you have set forth. And I will follow. So as we think about the way in which we pray, how closely do our prayers resemble that of Jesus in our times of distress? Is it simply that we just want God to fix everything? Or do we genuinely desire that the kingdom of God advance greater than we desire our troubles to be taken away? Because the reality is is that the church does advance and the kingdom of God advances and our sanctification grows often throughout church history and throughout these days through some of the darkest hours. Christ understood that. Therefore, he was saying, not my will, but your will. Do I understand that? Do you understand that? Do we as a church understand that? Are we willing to pray, God, yes, I would love for this cancer to be gone, but above that, I want your will to be done. I want your purpose to stand. Yes, I would love for this, this cup to be taken from me. I would love for life to be easier, but above that, I want your purpose to stand. I want your kingdom to advance. I want your glory to be proclaimed. A perfect example, we think about our youth. In six days, they'll be getting on an airplane. I know that for parents and grandparents, that is a heavy burden to take. That you're putting your child on an airplane to go not halfway across the country, all the way across the country. And it would be easier for them to stay at home. It would be. It would be cheaper and it would be safer. No questions about that. But the question is, do we want what is easier and cheaper? What was easier and cheaper was for God to take the cup from Jesus and say, Jesus, you don't have to do this. That was not the purpose of God. The purpose of God is not for the church to stay inside these walls and take the gospel and put it under our jacket. But we have been given a biblical mandate to take the gospel to the nations. So why don't we go to San Francisco? Why don't we spend thousands of dollars? Why don't we commit our youth to do that? Because we believe that we have been given a command by God's word to be a vessel of His grace to the nations. And so what's primary is not my safety and your safety. What's primary is not how much money we have in the bank. But what's primary is being submissive to the authority of the Father. Who said, this is what I have commanded the church to do. Do it. 
Will you submit to what you want to do? Or will you submit to what the Father has for us to do? And so the prayer is that this will be something that becomes a regular thing at Red Bud. And that we constantly won't be getting questions every year. Why are they going so far? Why are they doing this? Because the Bible commands us to do it. Would it be safer to stay at home? Yes, it would be safer. Yes, it would be cheaper. Can I promise they'll return safely? I can't and I won't. God doesn't promise that. But He promises He will never leave nor forsake His children. At times that may mean that they don't come. People say, well, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Is it? Jesus is in the center of God's will. I believe that Jesus is in the center of God's will right here. Is this a safe place to be? He's about to be killed in 12 hours. Is it a safe place to be for the apostles when they were killed? Were they outside of the will of God? This passage pushes us to not stop in the middle of prayer. But to keep going. Yeah, it would be great if life was a little easier. And God, what's going on is hard. And I'd be really happy if you took it from me. But if you're not taking it from me, it's going to advance your church. It's going to advance your kingdom. And I want you to keep it in my life. Are we willing to pray that? Are we willing to pray that God, if this distress and trouble and tribulation that is upon me today, if by you keeping it upon me will advance the church, I'm willing to. If by you keeping it upon me, it will increase my sanctification. I'm willing to keep it. If by you keeping this upon me will glorify your name, then I'm willing to keep it. Are we willing to pray prayers like that? Sincerely. This is what Jesus prayed. In his distress turmoil in this darkest hour, he turns to the Father and prays this. It wasn't just a quick prayer. He's continually praying. And as we read, he goes three times back to the disciples and they're asleep. So we see this comparing and contrast that Jesus remains faithful in the garden. If you remember way back in Genesis, there was another man in the garden who didn't remain faithful. It was Adam. But in this garden, this man remains faithful because of his prayers. If you notice, if you read before and after this passage, Peter, James, and John, are they faithful to Jesus? As we're going to see next week, they betray him. So while Jesus is praying... Through his prayers, the Spirit gives him strength to be faithful. But the Peter, James, and John are sleeping. 
They're not diligent. They're not asking the Lord to help them. And they are not faithful. In fact, they betray their Lord. They deny Him. So if the Son of God, the Son of God, needs intimate prayer with the Father to persevere through the darkest hour. How much more do I need prayer to persevere through the darkest hour? How much more do you need prayer to persevere through the darkest hour? Jesus knew the Old Testament uh, much better than I did, or I do, and much better than you do. Uh, So I have no doubt that Psalm 42 was upon his mind. Because in this psalm, many consider it to be a messianic psalm, foreshadowing the very thing that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to these words of Psalm 42. And I can't imagine these words not being upon the mind and the heart of Jesus as he's praying in the Garden. In chapter 43, verse 5, He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Verse 7, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. Listen to the despair of the psalmist. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Is this not what Jesus is crying out of the garden? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I was with a deadly wound in my bones. My adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So for Christ and for the believer, the promise is not that there will not be dark days. The promise is not that God's going to protect you from every harm and evil. The promise is that God will be your God of salvation. And so as we think about what to do in our times of distress and turmoil, Verse 11 of 40, chapter 42 is the answer. When we ask, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Our answer is, hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So why can Jesus say, your will be done and not mine? Because He knows that He shall again praise God. He knows that He will be raised from the dead. And we have that promise too. And as sons of God, those who have faith in Christ, those who claim Him as their Lord, those who have repented of their sins, can say with Christ, though I perish today, though you not take the darkness off in this hour, I will rise again to praise my God. 
my God, my salvation. That is the hope in the midst of distress and trouble. Let's go to the Lord.